Go Wild is a free social community created for and by hunters. This means that unlike mainstream social media, your trophy pictures won't be censored. They're encouraged. As you spend time on Go Wild, you will earn awesome rewards such as gift cards, free swag, and big discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex. You will even earn $10 just for signing up. Visit DownloadGoWild.com and sign up today. Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. This is the Average Conservationist Podcast brought to you by Outdoor Class and in partner with 2% for Conservation. Outdoor Class is the new single source of premium outdoor education from trusted, knowledgeable experts. For hunters committed to improving their skills, Outdoor Class is the only subscription-based e-learning platform that provides unlimited access to video lessons from the world's most respected experts covering topics across a hunter's entire journey. Learn from industry leaders like Corey Jacobson, Randy Newberg, Remy Warren, and other prominent personalities and organizations. Sign up today and use code AVERAGE to save 20%. 2% for Conservation's mission is to create an alliance of businesses and individuals that ensure the future of hunting and angling by committing their time and dollars to fish and wildlife. 1% of your time plus 1% of your money equals 2% for Conservation. 2% helps businesses and people pair with conservation causes to support things that fit what they care about. Whether you're into fishing, hunting, or just getting outdoors, 2% can help you not only start giving back to wildlife, but get certified for it. Getting 2% certified means you've made the same commitment as popular brands like Sitka, Stone Glacier, and Seek Outside in giving at least 1% of your time and dollars back to wildlife. But it's not just for outdoor companies, breweries, Contractors, coffee roasters, and even piano repair companies have earned 2% certification and stand out as leaders in their communities for doing so. Businesses that are committed to conservation deserve your business when you shop. Learn more about 2% for conservation at fishandwildlife.org. That's fishandwildlife.org. going on everyone happy wednesday welcome back to another episode of the average conservationist podcast and i'm your host marcus ewing all right heavy really fun um conversation for you today today i'm joined by stephen davis <clears throat> stephen is a gosh he's he's a lot of things uh former musician um turned real estate agent bourbon connoisseur michigan native uh yeah Stephen was awesome uh Stephen is currently uh as i mentioned a real estate agent uh in kentucky uh recently certified with two percent for conservation um and Stephen's story is an awesome one um he as i mentioned he's a michigan native so we get to talk about that what led him down the path um to becoming a musician uh how he eventually landed in kentucky with his husband the circumstances isn't the right word, but, um, really how he ended up, uh, working in real estate. Um, 
you know, life comes at you and the music thing wasn't working out for him or they're, they're, that's not, that's not the right way to put it. He didn't have the opportunities, um, in Lexington, uh, where he currently resides as he was kind of in Metro Detroit, uh, area here. Um, so he, he shifted gears, uh, and through that he has found, I mean, I don't know if it's it, it, to say it's his calling is the right word, uh, or the right phrase. Um, but he is excelling. He's doing very well. Uh, he, he, I mean, I've, I've known Steven for an hour, um, but getting to talk to him, you, you sometimes feel like you get a really good sense, uh, for a person and he seems to be, uh, truly happy, uh, with what he's doing. And it really came through, um, a lot in, in what we talked about. Uh, we, we take a really good sidebar and we get to talk about bourbon. Uh, Steven is a, uh, big fan of the Kentucky spirits. Um, so we get to talk about that, uh, which is always fun when, you know, we can kind of talk about our personal, um, interests, uh, outside of, of just the outdoors. So we got to, uh, kind of share some, share some stories and some recommendations with, with each other. Uh, so it's certainly enjoyable. Uh, I mean, all in all, it was just, uh, it was a really fun conversation. I remember telling Steven when we wrapped up recording that, the, the hour that we recorded for went by extremely quick. Um, and to me, uh, that's always the sign of, of a good podcast, of a good, of a good episode when the conversation is just really flowing. You're not really paying attention to time. Uh, and then next thing you know, it's been an hour. So all in all, a, a super, uh, fun episode that I think you guys, you'll just enjoy the back and forth. So episode 137 with Steven Davis. Enjoy. Stephen Davis, welcome to the podcast, man. How are you today? I'm doing great, and and thank you for having me. Uh, I feel pretty good. Good, good, man. Yeah. I'm uh, no, I'm excited to talk more. Um, I've we've had there's been a few, uh, I guess, real estate agents or realtors um, that have pledged the commitment to two percent for conservation. You are certainly the most recent one, and only the second one that I've had on the podcast. So I'm certainly excited to hear more about kind of your journey into real estate, how you landed here, because we kind of talked a little bit before we started recording here about yeah. the path that brought you at least to Kentucky where you're at now. But yeah, what got you into real estate, the outdoors, you know, kind of how 2% ties into into all that. So before we, we dive real deep into it, Stephen, mm-hmm. tell me uh, tell me a little bit about yourself, man. Give me, the, uh, give me your background. Uh, okay, so I grew up in Michigan. I was born in Detroit and spent a lot of time there, moved to the suburbs, uh, then then moved a lot after that. I grew up very modest means. So for a little while there, didn't have like a solid place to live and moved around a lot with like family members and so, with my mom, but um, didn't really have a place to live. Eventually got a lot more stable, uh, ended up at Farmington High School. From there, went to University of Michigan, go blue always. And uh, I studied music and I was a musician and a teacher for uh, many years um, after graduating grad school. Actually, I started teaching in grad school, but um, musician turned realtor and uh, really a, a city person through and through. I mean, I have a very Southern heart just because of where my grandparents are from and the way I was raised, but 
by by no means was I raised in any kinds of woods or uh, anything cool like that or on a farm. I mean, I wish, but but uh, I was a Detroit kid. No, that's all right. I I love to hear when people kind of find that that outdoors. Uh, you know, like yeah. uh, you know, I've I I know like I was reading your profile on Two Percent uh, on their website there. And, you know, avid backpacker, you know, all around outdoorsman and recently, you know, got into hunting later yeah. on in life. But hunting aside, like just getting into the outdoors, like mm-hmm. I love to hear that because, you know, I've had friends from Metro Detroit, you know, not necessarily mm-hmm. Detroit proper or anything, but they grew up, you know, kind of in the area where I live now yep. and had never really experienced the outdoors the way I kind of experienced it growing up. I grew up in northern Michigan in a you know, fairly small rural community so like that was a big part of my upbringing like that was just part of of kind of the the culture where i grew up and i always love it when people um who haven't experienced that their entire life they find it in the later point and they're just like they just become immersed with it like they just they love it it's 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 kind of the yin to the yang you know what i mean yep it's uh it's been really circuitous how I've gotten here. I mean, I would say I always liked outside. I think some of my first memories outside were like catching bees, which ironically I don't like anymore. I mean, I think (laughs) bees are important, but I got stung in the eye when I was a teenager and like never really wanted to like play with bees anymore. But as a little kid, even, even outside playing like abandoned fields between like where a house used to be, wildflowers are growing up. and, And I always just found being outside to be a really cool thing, but that was more of a, a city kind of experience and my mom was the kind of mom that was like play outside until it's time to eat or unless there's something wrong so i always felt comfortable out there but didn't really have that um i guess more stereotypical experience that most people think of when they think of outside which is the hiking and the backpacking for me it was just like riding around bike neighborhoods playing with bugs playing with snakes whatever like just doing random stuff and it wasn't yeah. until college that I had some friends that were like, let's go camping. And I'm like, that sounds awesome. And that was really what kicked it off. You know, I kind of had a little bit of my own money, kind of had like little jobs in, in college and stuff and could start to really explore on my own, something that I'd always wanted to do, but just never had that opportunity. Yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, I, I mean, my upbringing was, was very similar in terms of that, where my parents were always like, just get outside, just go yeah. do something. And, you know, be home when, you know, like back, I mean, this is, I'm going to age myself here, but I mean, there's certainly not cell phones, you know, right, it, was, yeah. it was hop on the bike, you know, you could ride to a friend's house or, you know, we're in the little neighborhood that I lived in. Like there was like little patches of woods around. So it'd be yeah. like, oh, like you and your friends would like ride down, like park your, literally park your bike on the side of the road, mm-hmm. like just hop into the woods and like, build trails and build forts and you know you're doing all these things like you're just being a kid man right and and i think that regardless of you know where you grew up whether it's you know a rural area whether it's the city like those things stick with you as you get older and then you know hopefully you get to an opportunity or, or a point in your life where you can just you know kind of reapply those into you know bigger landscapes i guess yeah yeah so as you went to school for music and became a teacher, what, what, from, from the music side of things, I mean, did you play a bunch of instruments or like, what was your forte when it came to that? Uh, so music for me was, it, it, collegially speaking, I studied the tuba, okay. um, which turned out to be, you know, really 
interesting choice. But so I, I went to school for music. And what's funny is about halfway through my undergraduate degree, I was really like, man, I don't like I love playing, but this idea of teaching is really I'm not digging it. Um, I, I tried to transfer into a different program at Michigan called Programs in the Environment. And it was all about sustainability and conservation and and all of this stuff that, again, like I, this, this seed had been planted so early about like this love and respect for the outdoors. But um, the powers that be were like, oh, no, well, you can't transfer. And I don't know why, but you're young. You're a little dumb. And even though it was my money to spend and, you know, my future for the rest of my life, I thought, okay, well, if they say I can't, then I guess I'm not gonna, you know, my, my yeah. music professors were not hip to that idea. And so I stayed in music and finished that out. Um, and ultimately my move to Kentucky in 2018 is really what got me into real estate, like out of the teaching, out of the, the playing, I was gigging a lot. I was freelancing and I was teaching. I think, I think I taught at 10 different schools, three marching bands, and I had a private studio of like 22 kids. So I was, I was busy, always been a hard worker, very busy and, and, and making it okay. And, um, when I moved down here though, uh, smaller place, not nearly as big as Metro Detroit, um, certainly not a lot of opportunities for my instrument type to be freelancing and playing the way that I was in, in Detroit. Everything changed. Everything got smaller, which wasn't in itself bad, but um, I kind of had one more shot to try to, I gave myself one more shot to try to um, audition for an orchestra and that didn't work out. So I was like, you know, I think it's time to have that conversation of if I'm, you know, am I giving up or am I moving on? And that was really, really difficult for me, but ultimately I decided I'm moving on and I had given it the college try. I had seen success. I had done something that I loved, but it wasn't really practical or sustainable and I didn't really want to start over. I mean, it's hard to be an entrepreneur yeah. and when you're working in schools on top of that as a, as an elective teacher on top of that, it's just, things just start to get compounded and you're like staring 30 something in the face, like, okay, like how much, what's my bandwidth and like tolerance for doing all this from scratch again? Yeah. Well, I think it's also like being able to have that, that kind of come to Jesus moment or that, you know, that having that realization, like, okay, it might be time to, to shift gears here. I think that's as, as adults, whether it's, you know, in our early 30s, our late 30s, whenever it is, I think we all kind of come to that point at, at some point in our life where maybe what we set out to do wasn't, it, it wasn't working out for whatever reason. Maybe yeah. just your interests changed or um, like in your case, like your your situation changed, you know, you geographically, you moved, there weren't the same opportunities right. there to be able to freelance and, and things like that that you talked about. So it's like, I, I think it's, it's, it's healthy for us to have those conversations internally and say, okay, you know, I've, I've done all that I can. I've explored all of my options in my new location. Yeah. Maybe it's not here. Let's see what else is out there. I mean, it's never too late to start over the way I look at it. Yeah. I, I've since realized the last part of what you said that it's, it's not too late. It doesn't make me want to go back to music because actually I've, I've never enjoyed music more since <laughs> not being a professional musician. Um, so that's cool, but I think that there's something really unique about music and maybe even about American culture. I've been talking about this with my friends a lot, like, um, you know, what you used to do was 
just a means to provide. Like when America was a more agrarian America and everyone farmed, like people had jobs. They they were blacksmiths or they were they were any kinds of things. And then they came home and they worked more. They worked and they're on their own small farms to provide food for their family to whatever extent. And I think a lot of um, our getting our hands dirty part of our culture and becoming more office, more sedentary, all that kind of stuff has really moved working to being a part of who you are. And like, it's a, it's a part of your identity. It's not just a, a means to an end. And so with music, that's very much the case. Who you are and how you express and all of that, it's very necessarily a part of the experience. And so leaving music was so hard because it's like, this is who I've been for all this long. Right. It's not just what I did. It's like, I, I am a musician. Like, this is who I am. And so to to feel like this weird death of part of self was, um, that was my first time ever grappling with any of that kind of like existential stuff that it was, yeah. it was just very, it was really interesting for me and, and really difficult, but I'm, I'm happy that I did it. I really am. So how did you land on real estate? Was it, I mean, what about real estate kind of drew you to that? Um, to me, it was very practical. I'm a very linear thinker <laughs> for better and for worse. So I, I had three options. I knew that, that we were probably going to be moving here in within like two years or something. My husband's from here and Kentucky seemed like kind of a goal just based on circumstances that were happening in, in Michigan. So I had talked to, we have a lot of police officers in my family, um, on his side and then like firefighters on my side. And, uh, we have, pharmaceutical salespeople and then there's people that we know down here in Lexington that did real estate. So being the person that I am, I was like, all right, well, I don't know when we're moving, but like, let me start the conversation. So I started talking to everyone in those specific three sort of fields to gauge, like, could I be good at this? You know, is this going to work out? What does it take to do it? Law enforcement was really interesting to me for a lot of reasons, pharmaceutical stuff, whatever. And I ultimately settled on real estate because I felt like no matter what the circumstances of the market were or the circumstances of the economy, there's always enough, there's always money to be made if you are of like a hardworking nature. Nobody, if you, if you, say, if you hustle, yeah, nobody can tell me like in teaching, like, oh, you just, we're not hiring you again because we're cutting music or, you know, here's your pink slip, but we're going to hire you for 20% less this year than what you were making last year or whatever. So I really liked the control aspect of, um, of what real estate could provide. It was, it was honestly for no other reason than just that, like the being able to control what I did, what people saw. Um, and like, I guess controlling the narrative, you know, there's a lot of bad narratives about realtors, but you know, if you put yourself out there and show people that you're hardworking then that's, that's what people will see. You don't have to be this other image that maybe people, um, think of in a more pejorative way. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And I like that train of thought that you, you know, you looked at some options that were out there, what could potentially be a good fit and you landed on the one that you felt you had the most control over because, yeah. you know, while real estate, I feel like is, you know, it is a sales job to, yeah. to an extent, you know, but ever, but people are always looking to, to buy or looking to sell. Like there's, there's always going to be those people out there, but it's, it's not really like a hard and fast sales. It's not like, here's your, you know, 10 minute cold call sales pitch kind of thing. Right. Like it's, 
it's a lot of relationship building. It's a lot of networking. And those are things that you can control. You can control how people perceive you, you know, how that first impression goes when you first meet a new client yeah. or a referral or something along those lines. And there's some, there's a, well, not something, there's a lot to be said about that with being able to control your environment because Absolutely. a lot of work, a lot of workplaces we can't, right? You, you, you punch yeah. in, you punch out, your boss tells you what you need to do, or, you know, you know, your jobs, the things that you need mm -hmm. to get done and, and that's it. There's, there's not really any wiggle room. And yeah. with real estate, you, I mean, you can get into all different avenues. You could specialize oh, yeah. in just, you know, like in land or residential, commercial, whatever. And the list goes on and on. So right. how, how is the process getting started as a real estate agent? Um, weird. <laughs> <laughs> it was weird. Um, so it was, you know, I kind of, I'm a hit their ground running. What, one of the great things about being a musician for so long was it did prepare me for, I think it prepared me beautifully for this career. Um, you're always selling yourself as a musician. You're always being told, no, I mean, you, you win the one audition, but you've probably auditioned 20, 28, 50 times, however many times. So, so no, and putting yourself out there and being your best advocate. Um, I kind of had that down what I didn't have down and what made it weird is I'm not from here and people are very very kind in Lexington I'll say it's kind of like this perfect little marriage between Midwestern culture and Southern culture because yeah. it's not quite either one um, and so people are nice but it's a it's a big town so it's one of these places where we have a lot of modernity here and you know the UK is in Lexington University of Kentucky for those listening um, and that's great but it's not really that big of a place, meaning everyone knows everyone. Um, people put a lot of stock in being a fifth generation Kentuckian or an eighth generation Kentu or whatever. And that's great. I don't have anything bad to say about that. You should be proud of where you come from. Um, but it necessarily makes it harder, I think, for an outsider to, to find a place or to find belonging or to find um, even a place to prove yourself. You know, there's just a lot of closed doors that you can see through, but you can't necessarily just walk in and say, hey, I'm here. So my start was very millennial. I, I got on the internet. <laughs> I said, you know, I'm going to start making videos. I'm going to start, I'm just going to put it out there because for better and for worse, when you put stuff on the internet, it it stays. <laughs> yeah, it does. It stays, but the, the, the plus side is it's free. You know, we've all got smartphones now, you know, I didn't grow up with a cell phone. It's, it's honestly crazy to me, like what a cell phone can do now, <laughs> but I, oh, I know it's, it's absolutely wild. But, um, you know, I just, I got my iPhone and I said, I'm going to start talking about stuff. I'm going to show people that I know what I'm doing. I'm not just going to push paper for you. I'm not just here to take your money. I'm not here for a lot of the reasons that you think I'm here. Um, I actually take pride in my job. I work hard and, and I know a lot and you want someone like that advocating for you when you're making some of the largest financial decisions in your life. So I took to the internet and just started throwing so many things out there. Well, I think that, well, you make a good point with your approach to, to trying to get your name out there, to get yourself out there. I think, and, you know, coming from someone who, I've we've bought my wife and I have bought in two houses our you know mm -hmm. our first home like right after we got married you know our, our starter home so to speak and then you know we started to have kids and we started to outgrow that and we we uh we 
built and, and bought our second home. Nice. And the relationship that we have with our realtor, um, I know she's not listening, but Angie Dobbins is the absolute, she's a sweetheart. She is one of the nicest people I've ever come in contact with. But, you know, we haven't had a, a working relationship with her in, gosh, five years since we, you know, closed on the home that we're in now, which, I mean, I foresee us being here for a really long time, right? Like it, my guess is by the time we would look to downsize, you know, when the kids are out of the house and all that good stuff, and this is just too much home, Angie ain't going to be working, right? So <laughs> we, we, we would have to like go down that whole road of finding another realtor and things like that. Yeah. But you know, every year she sends us a Christmas card or she's like texting my wife saying, Hey, can we get together for coffee? Like it just, it would be nice to catch up. Like those are the types of people that you want representing your interest in yep. real estate. And I think that, you know, whether you're buying or selling, I think people pick up on that really quickly, right? They yep. pick up on the type of person that that real estate agent is because we went through a couple of bad apples before we, before we kind of just randomly found Angie. Um, we had a, like tried to apply or we had requested to, you know, look at a home that was in a listing. She was, I think the list, I don't know if she was the listing agent or how it, how it actually wound up, but she ended up representing us. And you know, the patience that real estate agents have is, huh, goodness, because <laughs> Can, I mean, we can we say were, it as many times as you want. I won't ever uh, get tired <laughs> of, of hearing that fact. I mean, we looked for houses for a year and we bought our first home in this is 23, probably 2014, maybe mm -hmm. somewhere in there when the market was the market was doing well. You know, every time we I mean, we put in probably 30 offers throughout the course of the year. And a lot of times it was, you know, someone coming with cash. Um, someone would come in, you know, 20 grand over asking or something like that. Like, and you know, my wife and I just, you know, kind of getting started, like we couldn't, we couldn't compete with that, especially mm -hmm. even if someone's coming in at asking with cash, it's like, yeah, well, we, we don't have that cash kind of thing. So she was, you know, very, you know, just, she was just great. And like, I recognize that in you, like that very personable, you know, I think, like you said, the, you know, the videos and putting yourself out there, like those things go a long way and, and kudos to you for being able to do that because a lot of people don't have, you know, kind of the, the self-assurance, the self-confidence to just put themselves yeah. out there like that. They're always afraid, oh, so-and-so, or who's going to think, you know, I look silly or they're going to call BS on something that I said, you know, like, I think yeah. those are the things you just have to get over, right? You do. And I mean, music prepared me for that. And I think too, if, if maybe I was doing real estate in Michigan where I had um, a social fabric kind of built into my life, right. being, having lived there for my entire life, that would, I might not have chosen to do it the same way, to be honest. But I, you know, it was, I didn't want to be in a place where I joined some club or did something just to be the realtor in the room either. I figured if I start making videos and I can do the whole, like show you that I know stuff, but the, the other part is you get to see who I am. I mean, obviously there are professional boundaries there. I don't, it's not sure. like here's my whole life, but what you see video wise from me is pretty much what you get when we're working together. And so I'm sure there are people that think that I'm silly, but I don't really ever have to hear about it. And you know, you, you can't win and win them all, but I do right. attract people that 
that want me to work for them and and work with them um, because I'm authentic. I think people can always sense authenticity. Now, whether your brands of authenticity clash or complement each other is always one thing or another. Um, you know, not everyone's meant to work on the same team, but um, I don't think anybody could ever accuse me of being insincere. Um, they may not like <laughs> my brand of sincerity at times, but uh, they, they certainly can't say that I'm a, I'm a dishonest person and, and be right in that accusation. That's no way. Yeah. And I think people, I mean, based on, you know, like some of like the, the reels and, and things like that that I was watching, like, yeah, you're exactly talking to you now who I saw in those videos, <laughs> right? Like there's, yeah. I didn't have, like, I, I'm not like, huh well, this isn't the Steven that I saw in all those <laughs> right, videos and things right. like that. No. So like, yeah, whether you, you like it or, or you don't from a, you know, a potential client standpoint, you are who you are. And I think that's, that's something that often gets lost in this day of, so in this day and age of social media is people are one person on the screen Yeah, off. There's something different. Um, so no, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's good. I, I, I certainly enjoy seeing that. How long did it take you to, to really gain traction, um, you know, in the real estate market there in Kentucky? Uh, I'd say like two years. I mean, I, I, I started just doing this house stuff and then, um, and I still do, but then I, I wasn't really seeking to love every aspect of my job. Cause I'd already had that. I was like, that's not really necessary for me to be happy. Like this could be a job that provides the ability for me to do even more stuff that I do love, but I don't need to wake up and love what I do. I just need to be passionate and be smart. So um, the the path to that was really through my specialization in land. And I started learning more about that and um, really making a concerted effort to like be that expert on Kentucky land. And that that's really been between years two and three that both residentially and land wise, things really started to come together where other agents were calling me like, Hey, you're the land guy. Right. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, okay, well, that's pretty cool. Like, you know, we go. theoretically we're competition, but you're calling to ask me for help and we don't even work together. Like that's neat. And then residentially speaking, um, it was similar, less so that people were calling me that were other agents, but just more so that I'd been around long enough to, just build. I mean, I really started from nothing outside of my in-laws. Um, I didn't know anybody here. Yeah. Like no one. So it just, it took finding places of belonging and showing up. Like I'm in a lot of bourbon clubs. I don't want to say how many, but <laughs> in a lot of we'll them. We'll get into that. We'll get into that. I do love bourbon. So, you know, it was just, it was being out socially and just being in places that I would normally be in, even if I wasn't a realtor. So right. Um, just socializing and, and creating my own social world um, off of a screen, of course, in order to just have people know that I existed. And so I would say that that was a solid two years for sure. Yeah. It, and that's the thing with almost all realtors is everyone starts at the same point, right? I mean, they may have, <clears throat> excuse me, some some type of network or if you join a, a brokerage where you're being kind of handed listings or something like that, you know, where they, you know, they're, they're coming, you know, they're filtered through or, or however, and then, you know, divvied out amongst real, you know, different agents. But we all start that the, everyone starts at that same, that same spot. Yep. And it's all about the work that you put in. Um, and, and that's going to determine, you know, how successful you are. I want to go back to the bourbon thing. 
Because ah. I've certainly heard you talk about it. Were you a bourbon guy prior to Kentucky, or is that something that you picked up since being in, in yeah. the home of bourbon? I have so many inappropriate jokes. Um, so <laughs> I'm not going to say any of them. Um, but so a friend of mine, one of my best friends, he and I went to Michigan together. And uh, he coincidentally ended up going to University of Kentucky for law school around the same time that I had started dating my husband who had family here. So we were always in Kentucky. Me and Eric, my, my best friend, uh, we would basically go buy a bottle of something we hadn't had before, watch the Michigan football game in his basement or apartment, wherever he had moved You know, several times between way back then and, and today. And um, we learned more about bourbon. So he really kind of got me into it. My husband always calls himself a a hillbilly drinker when it comes to bourbon. When he used to be in business, people would be like, oh, you're from Kentucky. You know so much about bourbon. And he's like, yeah, I just like makers and Diet Coke. So like, I, don't, like, <laughs> I don't know anything about bourbon. So I'm really the snob when it comes to it all. And it's probably been, I guess it's been like 10 years, almost 11 years that I've oh, really wow. been kind of in it and only recently that I've really started to be I guess more collecting of it I mean I everything in my house is meant to be drank but um, I've really I've started to join some bottle clubs along with my bourbon clubs and it's it's a very vicious uh, habit to have so many expensive ones between hunting and bourbon and traveling I'm like I have to keep working for the next hundred years. So, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, what is your? I, I I mean, this is probably asking a parent like, who's your favorite child? But if you had <laughs> to choose one, if you had to choose one bourbon, which one? I mean, price aside, like just one. You're like every time yeah. you have a glass, you're like this. This hits right. Like yeah, what is it? I, I would say. I mean, it's always a tie between these two and. It's it's depending on the day. It's got to be Woodford's double double oaked, um, which is a I think. Well, I don't know that the the viewers will see this, but it comes in a or the listeners, but it comes in like a little uh, three hundred seventy five milliliter bottle. Okay, it only comes out once a year from Woodford, and um, it's in a total of three oak barrels. So it's not double oaked; it's double double oaked, and um, it's fantastic. For a lot of reasons, or it would have to be uh, Orphan Barrels Rhetoric Twenty Four. So it's a twenty-four year age bourbon. Wow. There are, it's a series of twenty to twenty-six age bourbons. So there are six different iterations of this rhetoric. But the twenty-four, I would say, is my most favorite of the six. So see, I mean, you're you're light years ahead of like. So I was always a big scotch drinker. I was a single oh, malt guy. I, I, yeah, I, I I came by not like my dad picked it up later on in life, and I remember coming home from from like college or shortly uh, shortly after I graduated college, and he would, you know, he'd have a glass, and I remember like trying it a few times, and I was like, this is awful, Dad. I mean, I'm a college like <laughs> fresh out of college, right? I'm like, no, give me a Bud Light or you know something, right. yeah, something cheap and that I can drink a lot of, and. I had somewhat acquired a bit of a taste for it. 
And then, you know, sadly, my my father passed. So it was kind of like, I'm like, well, I'm, I got to start drinking scotch now. And I just, I acquired a taste for it. Like, you know, you drink yeah. enough of anything, you acquire a taste for it. And I started to really understand the different types. And I started to, you know, do some research and really got into it. But probably a year and a half ago, um, my wife likes bourbon. So I'm like, all right, like I'll, I mean, I'd had it before, but never seriously. And yeah, I, I, I much prefer bourbon now. Um, I don't have like, I don't have like a collection or anything like that. Like yeah. I, I like trying new things. Um, but it's, it's not always easy to find good bourbon here in Michigan. I mean, you've got to hop around to, a, yeah, <laughs> you've got to hop around to a lot of different stores because pretty much, you know, any liquor store or convenience store, supermarket, whatever, you're going to find a lot of the same players that you find everywhere. Right. But to find yeah. a good bottle is you kind of have to go off the beaten path a little bit, but it's when very I similar here, man. I feel your pain. I I like some. It's not really esoteric stuff, but I I, I probably am not the typical bourbon drinker. A lot of folks love Buffalo Trace, and they're kind of like the Beatles for me. It's like I respect them, but it doesn't really do a whole lot for for the, the way that <laughs> I, I like, like the Beatles or, or listen to music. So it's like you get all the accolades, but it's just it's just not my jam. Um, but here, I mean, we make ninety five percent of the world's bourbon here in right. Kentucky, and on any given day, I mean, finding even just some of the most standard stuff is almost an impossibility. Um, yeah, it's a it's very very difficult here, <laughs> and can be very frustrating. I found one that it's called Stellum, I believe is what it's called. Hmm. I don't know. We were, my wife and I were in a liquor store up in Traverse City this summer, and we went in there and we're like, we're just looking for some good bourbon, something to try. And by the way, uh, listeners, this is now the bourbon podcast, not the average <laughs> conservationist podcast. So, um, so, you know, and, and we don't know a ton about bourbon. We know we like it. We know we like to try different things. Yeah. Obviously some we like more than others. And yeah, he gave us this like 10 minute spiel about this bottle. And I think it's probably like a $50 bottle. So it's not like crazy expensive, mm -hmm. but it's not, you know, super low end. And he's like, you know, it, it costs $50, but it drinks, you know, much more expensive. And it almost looks like it, it all, like the bottles almost looks like a wine bottle. Like it's, it's very, like if you walked by in a store, like you wouldn't be like, oh, that looks like a good bourbon I want to try. But for, yeah, for what it is, for the price and everything. Yeah, we've, we've certainly uh, enjoyed a few bottles of that over the past well, couple if, months. If you ever need help or, accept, or exceptions, uh, uh, suggestions, I love talking bourbon. I could talk bourbon. Yeah. I mean, it's why I'm in so many clubs. Like I, it's just fun for me. And, um, if you still enjoy scotch, even a little bit, I would suggest from another land colleague of mine, he got me onto this cocktail. It's very easy. It's a called the Mark Twain and it's I've heard based, of it, but I don't know what's in it. It's, it's smooth. It's easy drinking. It's uh it's scotch. And then the next two ingredients I think are, um, lemon juice and, a little simple syrup, maybe three quarters of an ounce of each of those, and then a dash or two of Angostura bitters. And um, it's nice. It's a really balanced drink. If you just make it to a tea without modifying anything, you're going to be pretty pleased, I think, if you like anything smoky whatsoever. But, Is it kind of like a, a scotch version of like an old-fashioned kind it's of? I kind mean, of some of the, it's some similar like, ingredients. It's kind of like a scotch version, maybe of a sidecar. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, and you serve it in a coupe glass, but I mean, I always just serve it in a rocks glass. But I love bourbon. Yeah. I mean, bourbon is it's the it's the thing here besides horses thoroughbred racing is this is the horse capital of the world right here in lexington and i'm not a horse guy that's a whole aspect of land and real estate that is much beyond me my knowledge or experience um and it's that's a tiny tiny world um, especially when you start to talk about 43 million dollar horses but <laughs> it's 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 crazy so bourbon is my kentucky thing of choice and uh and i i like it just fine it's a, it's a lot of fun and uh there's just so much history and there are beautiful places that this bourbon is made all around the state uh, you can just go down a lot of rabbit holes with it and and they're really fun rabbit holes i feel like rabbit holes get bad raps but uh but they're really no, well since you threw the the invitation out there, I'm going to be blowing up your DMs and like, hey, Steven, Please got a do. question for you, right? Like, shoot me something that I can probably find here in Michigan because I need something new to try. Please do. So, all right. Trying to bring us like up to speed here. <laughs> you're, you're, you're in Kentucky now, wheeling and dealing on the real estate side of things. Yep. You know, getting really um, into the land side of real estate. Yeah. When does hunting come into the picture? Hunting is new. Hunting is a 2022 thing. I In 2020, before COVID became this thing that we were all dealing with. Um, Unsure of, yeah. Yeah, I I was like, man, I can do all this stuff outside to varying degrees. You know, I'm no Bear grills. I'm not going to like, I don't know. Yeah, so in any case, I can do a lot of stuff outside. You know, I, I love to be backpacking five days, six days, a week at a time. It's wonderful. But I was like, I can't eat. I can't eat outside unless it's on my back. <laughs> yeah. And I thought to myself, you know, how cool would it be to finally just round out all of these skills by becoming like a backcountry hunter one day? Like you probably don't start with that, but you know, it's, that's something I could aspire to to really add to my my outdoor toolbox and just general experience and love. But then 2020 happened. Then you know, I, I bought my. It wasn't my first gun, but it was my first rifle. I bought that from a from a past client. I helped him buy his first house from his dad. I call him my gun realtor because he has all these beautiful <laughs> guns and and he knows way more about the values and they're always trading and buying and selling. So I got this this gorgeous um, uh, Mark two seventy seven Ruger. It's a two seventy chamber and it's uh, it's stainless steel. It's just so handsome. And um, I'm like, yes, I'm going to go hunting. I had gone through the QDMA like deer stewardship course because I'm like, I'm also selling land. So this is going to be great knowledge for me to have selling all this rec land. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, 2020 came. So I I didn't have any place to hunt. Um, a lot of the public grounds here, whether you were hunting or just wanting to hike, that stuff was close. There's all this stuff that just happened around COVID that really uh, – put a kibosh on what I could do. And even like the field to fork program through, um, through NDA. Yes. Thank you. Yep. The, I, I keep wanting to say the old name. I know. Um, yeah. Through NDA, uh, you know, that wasn't going to happen because we weren't doing anything in person. So all of this stuff as a new and adult hunter that I might've otherwise jumped headfirst into. I mean, I love learning. Learning is, one of my favorite things, but um, COVID really made that a, a literal impossibility. And so I, I sat and I kept learning, of course, and I joined a shooting club and I, all these different things happened. And then I, I run into um, 
one guy named Zach Vikovic, who is just an incredible dude. Um, we ran into each other on social media. He came on my YouTube channel and was talking about all this wildlife biology stuff. And we became friends. Um, and then I ran into another guy probably in the last seven months who works in my office. He's also a realtor from Florida, big bird hunter. And so between the two of them, I really dove headfirst into experiencing hunting. So Zach helped me get my first deer on his family's property that he manages down in Southern Kentucky. I got a doe. It was awesome. Like I've been eating it for months now and it's, it's just great. And then Philippe, uh, he is, like I said, he's a bird hunter, big fisher too, like huge, huge fisher. Um, I guess so is Zach, but in any case, he's got a bird dog and he's kind of we would go shooting all the time at our shooting club and stuff. And so we, we sort of just developed this fast friendship and um, have really enjoyed hanging out, me, him and his wife. And it's been a good time. So um, all of my hunting desire has really come in this whirlwind in the last half of 2022. And it's been awesome. I mean, I've only wanted to do it more. I'm going to be doing some coyote hunting this, this uh, winter since nothing else really is in season. Plus, uh, I kind of have a coyote problem on my property anyway. There you go. And, uh, and I, you know, I've got all these clients and farming friends that are like, by all means, come and take these, these bad boys out. We're like, yeah, you know, be my guest. So I'm um, just trying to hone in on some of the basic stuff. You know, I got a lot to learn, a lot to catch up on, but it's really exciting because uh, I feel like I'm learning from really experienced and smart people. Cause a lot of people hunt, but not everyone's necessarily a smart hunter. And maybe even if they're smart, not everyone's a great teacher and not everyone wants to teach. People yeah. hunt for so many different reasons. You don't necessarily want to get out into the woods or wherever it is you hunt just to talk someone through stuff or just to um, instruct them and guide them. Um, that's not always the reason why. And, and I respect that. So I'm just really fortunate to have these two guys in my life to to really like usher me into all of these different aspects of, of the actual act of hunting and, and how to, how to do it well. Yeah. Well, it, it, you make a lot of good points there, Stephen. It's, it's a lot of, to, to take in, right. Yeah. Especially, you know, yeah. like the, you know, the deeper you dive into, into deer hunting, um, and even bird hunting or, or any type of hunting for that matter, like the, the nuance, the intricacies of all mm-hmm. of these things. I mean, there's just, I mean, I've been hunting deer for a, a very long time. And I feel like every year I go out, I, I screw something up and I learn something new every yeah. year. Or, you know, you just, you learn how to pattern deer a little bit more, you know, the more time you're in the woods. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's one thing that can't really be understated is, <clears throat> you know, even, even if you're out in the woods and you're not seeing deer or you're not seeing deer up close, like you're still you're learning things like that. That woodsmanship, I guess, is, is probably what people call it like that. That just continues to grow, you know, mm-hmm. more and more that you're that you're in the woods. And it's uh, yeah, it's it's one of those things uh, hunting and, you know, kudos to to your buddies there who, you know, have have taken you under their wing. No pun intended to the bird hunter there. <laughs> um, but I, I, I love to hear when people want to be, you know, mentors, because I think that, and I, I'm willing to bet just based on the, let's see, 45 minutes that we've been talking here, that you're going to come to a point in your kind of 
hunting journey where whether it's your husband, whether it's, you know, some other friends that you meet along the way where you're going to be like, let's get you involved. Like, in, yeah. and you're going to take a great amount of pride in, in wanting to teach them and wanting to mentor someone else because the experiences that you're going to get out of it are, you're just going to want to share them with other yeah. people. And I think that's, that's one of the beautiful things about getting into hunting, sticking with hunting, and then, you know, hopefully at some point mentoring, you know, mentoring others. Yeah. I hope to be able to have that, that opportunity too. I think, um, when I think of our nieces and nephews, a couple of them stand out as I, I think some good candidates for that. They're all, they all like the outdoors or at least like, you know, playing outside in like a very, um, basic way. But I think it'll, time will tell but two of them have some fearless streaks in them and they just, they just want to get in elbows deep in whatever it is they do. (laughs) So I feel like they, they might end up being my, uh, my hunting buddies one day or, or maybe just camping, but you know, when they get the chance to come out here and sleep in the tents and stuff, we have 13 acres here. So it's, we're kind of like the meeting spot for the greater family and, and it's awesome. But some of them are just like, yeah, I'm like, I'm going to go inside. And I'm like, yeah, you're probably not going to be hunting anytime soon. If you don't really want to be in this tent by the house, you know, with a nice fire and ice cream and all yeah. that ever. So, you know, but we'll see. I, it could be, I, I could totally be wrong. We all change a lot as we get older. So. So how did you feel that first time you squeezed the trigger on that dough this past season? So that was an interesting one. I, I got her on, uh, I, well, before I get far, I felt great. I felt really ready. I was really happy that I spent a lot of time understanding, you know, where do you place that shot and, um, and kind of developing my own ethical standard for as a new hunter, like this is the shot that I'm, if I can't get this shot, then I'm not going to take it, you know, that's a good thing to have. Yeah. So, I mean, working through all that ahead of time made me feel confident. Um, I shot her with a crossbow because it was not rifle season yet. And Zach was like, look, dude, you should just come, like, just come out and, and we will hunt like, and you kind of build up stuff in your head, whether it's hunting or anything where you're like, I, I got to do it this way. This is how it looks. This is how it's going to be. And I honestly had never imagined using a crossbow, you know, that just was not a part of my visual plan, but I'm like, you've got someone offering up to you like their time and to share so much of their hard work having managed this property that's hundreds and hundreds of acres um like take the win like go and do it yeah absolutely (laughs) like go freaking do it and so i mean i've got a video up I, i i did a whole blog about like my experience and just what it took to get there in the two years and uh, Zach was awesome because he had his camera and he, I mean, he was really just so thoughtful and, and caring around this being my first time. So we had it all on tape and I mean, it just was, it was exhilarating. It was absolutely exhilarating. And, um, and I learned a lot about what I didn't know too. So yeah. that was, that was incredible. And uh, tracking was a huge, interesting experience that I I want to learn to be better at um zach fantastic i mean he if i didn't have him i probably would have been one of those folks that gets a deer but never recovers it because yeah it was dark and it was it was very difficult um but yeah we i dressed it 
And he helped me at the spots where I was like, okay, like I feel stuck. Like what's going on? And you can watch Steve Ranilla like a million times. Like I yeah. did. It's like, here's how to dress a deer. But you know, you, it's still really, really difficult when it, you're doing it for the very first time and it's dark. Uh, in dark. Yeah. You're headlamp or something. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, but it was awesome. And then Zach helped me with butchering it. I mean, we went through the entire process and he was I mean, it was a really life-changing experience from start to finish. Yeah. How yeah. how proud were you, whether outwardly, inwardly, that first time you, whether it was, you know, making some burgers, some sausage, whether you fried up like the back straps. I mean. Oh, my gosh. I was I was super nervous. I, I've grown up eating smatterings of like wild game, believe it or not, but I never cooked it before. So I had a bourbon weekend. <laughs> Shocker. I had a bourbon weekend with my two best buds, Eric and Jake. And so we, we toured Bardstown and we got stupid and we we had so much fun. And so the last day of the trip, I said, I want to cook a wild game dinner for you guys. And I was nervous as all hell. I just was like, I don't want to mess this up. So I made backstrap and tenderloin because we all like to eat. And I did mashed potatoes and uh, I do asparagus. I can't remember all that I made, but it was a pretty big dinner. And, um, they loved it. And I, I get very old school. Like I want to sit and see everybody else eat, yeah. like, make sure they're good. I mean, I'm thinking like, are they being serious? They just trying to like make me feel good. And like, I mean, they are just going to town. So I eat or start eating and I'm like, wow, like I, I didn't mess this up. Like this I did is, it. I did it. Really good. I mean, I was ecstatic. I was absolutely ecstatic that it turned out well, that they loved it, that it was something, I mean, it was a very simple recipe. I basically cooked it like steak, you know, Yeah. keep it mid-rare and all that. Yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, I got cast iron skillets everywhere. So just real, using the knowledge that I have about cooking, but on the game, I just was like, ah, uh, this is, I just hope I don't mess it up. You know, I just hope yeah. I don't mess it up. And I didn't. So I, I was like 10 out of 10 happy. Like That's awesome. Yeah. It was really, really great. It was really great. So kind of sticking with the hunting, the outdoors, the land, where does 2% tie into all this? How did you, how did you find out about 2% for conservation? What made you decide to get certified? Kind of walk me through that. So 2% came to me. So I am on the board of directors for the Bluegrass Land Conservancy. Yep. And that is, uh, it's, well, it's a very small organization, but a really, really big footprint here in this, like the bluegrass region which is a distinct thing. It's not all of Kentucky. It's a very like specific geological thing. Uh, we've con- conserved about 32,000 acres of, of land. And um, again, going back to my general love of respect for all of that stuff when it comes to the outdoors and land and stewardship, um, I started, I got asked to be a, a board member probably, it was during COVID, but I can't remember if it was 2020 or 2021. And um, I was ecstatic to do it because I, I didn't want to be on a board just to be on a board. I wanted to be on a board of something I cared about. And so I very much have a direct hand in the projects that we approve to be of for like a conservation easement, what those uh, legal negotiation terms actually look like. Um, certainly have a, a hand in raising money because it's a 501c3 and um, it's a it costs a lot of money dealing with the federal government when you're talking about the NRCS and, and all that kind of stuff or appraisals and whatnot. Um, getting good face time with, with 
the farming families and just landowners that, that have easements that we that we hold as an organization. So that was what I started doing two years ago. And then one of the attorneys that is a part or that is uh, employed by the Bluegrass Land Conservancy was like, hey, I just got the Bluegrass Land Conservancy to be a I can't remember what the distinction is. Like I'm a certified business, but it's kind of like being a partner or like a, like a, yeah. Like, community, like a conservation com- partner. There's, there's yeah. some term for it and I should know it, yes. but I don't. I should yeah. know it too. But I, <laughs> um, I, so he said, you know, you're already doing this stuff. I mean, you spend all of this time <laughs> with us for all of these conservation projects. Like you should really look at 2% for conservation. And so I hadn't heard of it. And then I, I reached out to um, Jared and I was like, Hey, would love to, to, talk with you so I can understand like what this is and, and how it works. And, um, he was incredibly gracious with his time and, and really, really kind. And, um, it was not a hard sell for me at all. I was like, right. well, yeah, I am doing a lot of this. Like I spend a lot of time literally conserving land, but also, um, you know, the, the mission and the, the whole point of it existing and bringing other like-minded people and businesses together, I thought, yeah, this is awesome. Absolutely. And so I, uh, it didn't take long for me to write up my application and, you know, whatever and get certified and approved and all that stuff. So, yeah. so yeah, no. I'm, a, I'm very new at it, as you mentioned at the, the top of this, uh, this podcast, but, um, I'm just looking forward to like getting more involved and hopefully meeting people in person. Yeah. I'm soon. That's, I mean, that's, the the community um you know the the greater community of two percent whether it's uh, a business or um, one of the community partners like um like the one that you mentioned like the one that you're on the board directors for there or just individual members like it's just it's such a great group of 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 people um i mean i can't count on you know i mean i can't count the number of friendships and relationships that I've built with people just from having this on, you know, from having them as a guest on the podcast, continuing that friendship, you know, you really hit it off, you know, in the, you know, 45 minutes or an hour that you talk. And then, you know, that was, you know, two and a half years ago and we still, you know, keep in regular contact. And it's just, it's so many like-minded people um, from, you know, a a wide variety of backgrounds, but all share this kind of, you know, common interest, love for, you know, conserving land, wild places, the outdoors, all these things. And it's everyone's story is a little bit different. I think that's what makes 2% such a great organization is we all kind of got to the same point, but we all took a different route to get here. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I think that it's, um, it's really cool too, that there are so many across the the country. And I, so like, I'm going to a conference in Denver and I've already been like making a list of places that if, if I have time, because the conference is usually just, I mean, it's like you go from thing to thing to thing, but I would love to like check out some of these other businesses that are part of 2% for conservation and patronize their establishments if, if I can and that kind of thing, because life is all about, you know, how you fill your minutes and um, the, the relationships that you create are usually the foundation of how those minutes and hours are spent. So I just I love that face to face interaction. I'm really looking forward to that when I get out to Colorado and and I guess I'll be in Utah too. So that'll be yeah. that'll be fun. That, really fun. Your statement there on what fills our our hours and minutes that's 
that's very well said. I'm going to write that down for, and I'm going to steal <laughs> that from you at some point. So, okay, <laughs> by all means. <laughs> um, Stephen, before I let you get out of here, man, and enjoy the rest of your evening, where can people find out more about the real estate work that you're doing, about the work that you're doing for 2%, social media, all that good stuff, especially if they're in Kentucky and, and they're looking to um, you know, sell or buy some land or, or a home? Yeah, um, I love that question because <laughs> I love when people find me. Um, so my, my, my handles are really easy because almost all of them are the same. So Facebook, Instagram, and my website are all landandhomes.co. So there's no M, it's just .co, landedhomes.co. Um, and then if you want to find me on YouTube for longer format stuff um, similar to this, but just a video aspect added, um, you can find me at youtube.com slash landedhomes. Um, and uh, I think even YouTube has handles now, which I think that's landedhomes.co. Anyway, but you can find me at landedhomes.co. All of my stuff is on there. If you just go to my website, you'll find my Instagram, my YouTube, my email, all of that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, if for nothing else, give me a follow and I'll follow you back. And we'll chat about bourbon or something or whatever. Um, I'm all for... Social media has its place, you know, it, it doesn't be real connection in person, but it really does help connect people, I think, in, in some meaningful ways. So I'm always looking for meaningful and and fun connections um, where social media is concerned. Uh, people contact me for all sorts of things, <laughs> for Michigan, for bourbon questions. I mean, I, I get all sorts of like really fun questions. So, you know, if you're, yeah. if you're not looking at buying in Kentucky or you may need some help in another state, uh, I can help you there too. Awesome. Stephen Davis, thank you a ton, man. It was great talking to you. I wish you the best of luck and uh, hopefully thank we can you. do this again soon. I hope so too. I, I really appreciate you even thinking to, to ask me to do this. Yeah, of this course. Been really awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Well, go blue. Go blue. All right. Well, there you are. Episode 137 with Stephen Davis. Uh, big shout out to Stephen for joining me today. Uh, I would also like to thank the partners of the podcast, Stone Glacier, Go Hunt, Outdoor Class, and of course, 2% for Conservation. And if you're interested in learning more about 2% for Conservation, you can visit their website, fishandwildlife.org. And over there, you're going to see all the certified brands that have committed to conservation that you should support when you shop. I also encourage you guys to give 2% a follow on social media where it's going to be only positive conservation-driven content landing in your feeds. So again, if you'd like to learn more about 2% for Conservation, you can look for them online on social media or at fishandwildlife.org. Thanks for joining me this week, everyone. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Until next week, stay safe out there, and remember, conservation starts with you. <laughs>